Moving to Hawaii, I thought I would find more like-minded people in the sense that I knew there would be sort of a new age faction, a very large one, but I thought there would be more of a truly open faction or at least rational faction within that uh, with whom I could have deep discussions without them devolving into uh, monologues or shows of strength. I'm more powerful than you kind of subtext talks. Uh, but that isn't really the case. And in fact, in a surprising way to me, I mean, the, the new age crowd is certainly here and it is large, but it is by and large, um, people who would never listen to a guy like me. I mean, you know, they'll listen, but it's, uh, in service to getting to the next topic, which is usually about themselves. Um, because the real subtext is, I already know all of this stuff. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm powerful. I'm a master of something. Unless uh, if I were Hawaiian or if I were uh, dressed in a, the, the appropriate garb, perhaps a robe or something, maybe if I was thin and smelled like petroleum oil or incense or, you know, beating a, if I was beating a drum or, you know, all of the sort of cliched things that new agey guys do, um, then maybe I would be taken more seriously. But really... I find, by and large, again, that the New Age faction here is more about uh, cultural appropriation. They want that power from those, quote-unquote, spiritual kahunas, what they consider to be Hawaiian mysticism or Hawaiian magic. That's what they want to learn. So they're out. <laughs> uh, but then the other type that I seem to attract here uh, that I would not never think would have been the case is the fundamentalist Christian who really wants to monologue at you. And, um, this is especially the case when they find out that I host the experience, which is a uh, paranormal show. And that I used to write for UFO magazine. And when I say paranormal, I'm including UFOs and spirituality and, you know, anything that we call high strangeness or, uh, in the Western mind, abnormal, uh, experiences with seemingly other intelligences or even our own psychic or whatever you want to call it, intelligence, our own, again, at least in terms of the West, untapped capabilities. So once people find out I host a show like that or I've written about stuff like that, um, the new agey people, they don't really want to hear from me, but they're interested in the show, which is fine. But the fundamentalists, well, they want to convert me. <laughs> they, want to, they want to tell me all about what the paranormal really is, and it's the devil. And, uh, you know, whether it's whispering in close about being in Jesus's army and carrying a flaming sword and all of that, or it's, um, well, for instance... A couple of months ago, the Sears repair guy came to do the annual maintenance, and uh, we had seen him before, and he remembered me, and uh, he remembered that I had, that I hosted a paranormal show. And so this go-round, he started talking to me about it, and I thought maybe he was interested in it. But um, then he asked my wife and I for permission to speak freely <laughs> as a person and not as a representative of Sears. And we said, sure. 
and um, he pulled up a stool, uh, like a bar stool type thing that we have. That uh, so he was sitting up while we were on couches, sitting down. So he had the floor, right? And boy, for the next at least I don't know hour an hour and a half, <laughs> uh, he badgered us about Christianity, about his his version of Christianity, which of course is the only version of Christianity. It's the only right way. And uh, all that paranormal stuff, all that UFO stuff, that's just Satan uh, in various disguises. And it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a real conversation. Um, I could challenge him. I could ask questions, but he was here to teach. And at some point in there, I even asked him, you know, at what point do you realize that Everyone knows who Jesus is, you know, like this whole thing of I've got to convert people. I've got to talk to people about this. Don't you know that we know like my dad was a minister, you know, like who hasn't heard of Jesus in this country unless you're a uh, very young sheltered child. (laughs) But but I don't know. I don't know the truth. I don't know the true Jesus. And I actually, uh, I tried this tactic. I told him about that um, uh, power for living prayer that I spoke about in a previous episode, uh, where I said the prayer, I meant it, and then I had this great feeling of absolution and joy and and, uh, knew that all my sins, whatever that means, had been uh, erased, eradicated from the record. (laughs) Uh, Won't see those on Judgment Day, no, sir. And uh, he was kind of thrilled to hear that until I told him, oh, by the way, this came from the Mormons. So what do you think about the Mormons? And he kind of stuttered for a minute. And he just, he said, um, well, uh, you know, the Lord, kind of akin to the Lord works in mysterious ways. Essentially, the Lord will use any tool to, to speak to you, is basically what he said. And I said, yeah, but... If this is a fake religion, if this is a false god, well, then I should now believe in it because that false god is the one who gave me this feeling, right? So it wouldn't convert me to your Jesus. It would actually make me firm in the belief of Mormonism if I were to believe anything about it like that. And he kind of uh, laughed it off and just repeated what he said because there is no answer to that. There's no, There's no answer to any... I mean, it's all absurd, right? The whole thing of... Trying to convert someone is absurd. And as I'm speaking now, I realize that the rain has come to join and help me with this talk story. So, uh, thank you, the rain. It may get loud in here. I don't know. But no apologies. We love the rain. Anyway, this gets to the question of why is it that we need to be right and we need to convert others? Uh, now, I hear that this is usually a male phenomenon. Um, in fact, I got into some trouble arguing over this online. Uh, people thought I was being sexist by saying, no, women do it too. It's called nagging. Uh, but what I really meant by that is that we all, in our, you know, all both genders in their own ways, um, maybe due to sexism, men feel that they can lord over women at work and overly instruct where no instruction is necessary because the woman knows exactly what he's talking about. 
so maybe because of sexism, the man feels more comfortable in the workplace than, than the woman to let loose and, and be a know-it-all? Um, I don't know. But in the home, certainly, uh, how many guys do I know who build a man cave to block out their wives? Um, and the old cliche of the woman is always right, that she has to have everything her way or else it's wrong. There is no your way, my way. It's my way or the highway. Now, this isn't to say all men are doing this and all women are doing this. It's saying that everyone's doing it, you know? Whether it comes out, whether it flowers in a different expression through gender due to the fact that women are more comfortable at home and men are more comfortable at work, I don't know. I don't even know that that's true, because I know plenty of women, as does my wife, who was the first to say uh, pretty much every woman she's known has needed to, uh, in the work situation at least, be right and over-explain the obvious to you like you're a dummy. I think we all do this. And, I mean, there are plenty of things that we can get men on, right? Like, there is, of course, sexism in the world, and men express it. Uh... And we've certainly uh, brainwashed enough women into self-hating and doing it on their own, or at least uh, supporting us. There, there was a thread on Facebook someone wrote about, is chivalry dead? Like, who cares? <laughs> but the entire comment section of this was just a bunch of sexist uh, stuff about how feminism has killed chivalry, and a lot of the women were the ones saying it. And of course, me being the troll that I am, I asked, uh, give one instance, give one instance where you were being chivalrous, <laughs> you were holding a door for someone or being polite to someone of the opposite sex, and, uh, and you, they chastise you for it. And then one guy said he held a door for a woman at a motel, and for 25 minutes she yelled at him about gender roles, and she could get the door herself, and blah, blah, blah. And then people started responding to that, like, oh my god, yeah, blah, blah, blah. But, troll that I am, once again, I had to chime in and ask, well, wait a minute, you stood at a door in a motel lobby for 25 minutes, taking it on the nose for holding the door for someone? That doesn't sound like that happened. That sounds like uh, malarkey to me. And he essentially said, you don't know who I am. I held my, hung my head in shame and, and, and did take it for 25 minutes. That's the kind of thing I would do. And my answer to that, as my wife said, the woman on the woman's end sounds like mental illness. It doesn't sound like feminism. It sounds like there's something wrong there. But there's also something wrong with him that for 25 minutes he would hang his head in shame and take it from a complete stranger about sexism from holding the door. So you see... Even when we think about uh, things like that, we're not really honest with ourselves about who we are in the situation, and we're not really clear, even though on, on the screen, when you type it, it looks to be clear. Unless you know that person, you're not really clear with what happened. You know, all these people chiming in about feminism kill, killing chivalry, for all we know, they're talking about stalking women. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like... Uh, so I digress, <laughs> really getting away from the, uh, from the premise of this episode. And the premise is of course, that, uh, needing to be right in converting others is the fear of the unknown and therefore life itself. I mean, needing to be right 
We've talked about this in in different ways through this show. And at OurUndoing.com, come on down, join the club. Uh, that we need to convert others. We need to have them tell us we're right. Because we know that we're on shaky ground. Because really, we're born into a situation, life, where we don't know anything at all. And so the only way that we can uh, feel is that we have a firm foothold in life is by consensus. And the only way we can have confidence in life is by building consensus based on what we say. And we do this because it's easier to live in a bunch of constructs, a bunch of thought constructs, which are illusions. Because we are thought. It's easier to to branch out our own self into social, into consensual sense of self than it is to see the fear that the self is uh, seeking to eliminate by seeking answers and then by seeking others to convert them to your answers. Now let me ask you a question. What is the unknowable? Not the unknown, but the unknowable. Is it death? Don't say yes or no, just work it through. I mean, really, ponder this for a second. What is knowable resides in thought. What is unknowable does not. Right? The knowable is a product of the past. Something you've gone through. Something you've understood. Something you've comprehended. This is the past. What is unknowable, therefore doesn't reside in thought. The unknowable doesn't reside in the past. You can't get at it through concrete examples, through repeatability. You can keep searching your databanks for it, you can keep looking, but if it's unknowable, it's not going to be there. If it's unknown, it'll be there. Right? This is the difference between the unknown and the unknowable. The unknown is something that you just don't know at the moment, but once you search around, once you do the Google search or you search your own memory, uh, you realize, oh, yeah, that's this. Or if someone teaches it to you, you go, oh, yeah, now I know. But the unknowable is out of time. And so who are you? Are you out of time? No. You're in time. You're creating time by your very being here. You're, the physical arc of your life is time. You are thought. Thought and time are inseparable. Therefore, you are incompatible with the unknowable. You're perfectly compatible with the unknown. Because that's just something that'll come to light eventually. But with the unknowable, you are incompatible. So to understand the unknowable is to be the unknowable. To be that timeless awareness that thought cannot touch. Does this make sense? If you're wondering what that loud thud was, it was a bird flying into the sliding glass door window. And uh, I got up and checked it out. Uh, the bird's okay. The bird. I mean, it was a light smacking into the window, and then it flew off. Um, 
But the interesting thing about that is that there are very thick curtains uh, that are covering the window. And I can just see out of the crack um, by the door handle from my angle. I saw the bird swoop in and do that. Um, but the point is, the window isn't open. The curtains are closed. So there's no reason for that bird to have thought that it could fly in here. Um, so, <laughs> interesting, right? Uh, well, I'll tell you why it's interesting to me in case it isn't interesting to you is that every now and then, um, I get these, uh, signs that what I'm saying, well, I guess I interpret it to mean, uh, that what I'm saying is, I don't want to say important, but on the right track, necessary nature's listening. Maybe it happened. Uh, a few weeks ago, I had a talk here at the Jalon workshop, and uh, I was talking about my own kundalini, or maybe I should put that in quotes, quote-unquote kundalini experience, um, and how it unfolded. And right at the beginning of this talk, uh, we're all sitting in a circle, and uh, there's another sliding glass door. So the one that was sort of in front of me to my right, uh, a mouse <laughs> jumped up on the screen outside the door and just started climbing and climbed up to the door handle and sat there. And, you know, you don't see it because the camera's on me in this thing, but you certainly hear me and you see me react to it and, and hear me say, is that a mouse? Did a mu was that a bird? Or Cause it was kind of hard to tell what was going on at first. Cause I, I've never seen a mouse climb up a, you know, jump on a screen and climb up, especially, in, you know, in the day, uh, in a room full of people like that just <laughs> doesn't happen. So I thought that was, huh, that was interesting. Um, another more concrete example is when, uh, Teokas and ghost horse came to, uh, play flute on a weekend that was really wild with synchronicities. Uh, and this was a couple of years ago. And um, so we were, you know, we were staying at a friend's place. And in the morning, I, I heard what I thought was knocking on the door. Uh, it was something knocking. And I thought, I thought it was Teokasin or our friend, you know, maybe waking me up. Maybe I had overslept or something, but the door was to my left and the knocking was coming to my right. So uh, I realized pretty immediately that didn't make sense. And I look over to my right and there is a bird uh, flapping its wings to keep its position hovering in the window and tapping on the window with its beak. And uh, once it got my attention, it just flew away. And I went and examined this window. There's not a bird's nest on it. It's on the second floor. There's no ledge for it to stand on. Uh, it was literally just hovering, hovering and, and for some unknown reason, tapping on the window. And, of course, I went downstairs and asked Teokasin if he had sent a messenger <laughs> to wake me. And he told me, no, I'm just racist. Uh, don't ever say that again about the Lakota. No, he didn't say that. But maybe he thought it. Who knows? I don't know. But uh, so these are just examples of like when nature calls, right? Or I guess <laughs> the less scatological humor version is uh, when nature confirms. 
And now that this episode has gone wildly off course, I'll tell you my my other favorite one, which was when I first went snorkeling um, at Kahalu'u Beach. And um, it was my first time. I love snorkeling alone. I love going out there and just observing and learning from fish and from the ocean. And uh, when I came in, there was a little nook where you could sort of swim up and take off your fins. And I did that, and I hear a guy yelling at me from the wall. There was this uh, surf break wall, and he was either standing or sitting on it. And he was yelling at me, but I couldn't really make out what he was saying because, uh, you know, the ocean is noisy. But eventually, I, I got it. I, I got one of my flippers off, and I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, turtle, there's a turtle. And so he's yelling at me about this sea turtle. Uh, which I don't see at all. And then suddenly it swims up onto my belly and it just starts patting me with its flippers. And it's like checking out my fins and uh, lightly tapping me with its, like smacking me around with its flipper uh, as it's looking at my flippers. And it's illegal to touch um, sea turtles uh, in Hawaii. So I put my hands in the air because the, there are some beaches that have lifeguards. It's rare, but there are some, and this is one of them. So I put my hands up in the air and just said, I'm not doing this. This isn't me. Um, and just let this sea turtle welcome me to the ocean and check me out. And, uh, and then I, I told that story to someone and they told me that's my Amakua. That's, that's my spirit animal. And I thought, Oh, okay, there you go. And then ever since then, I seem to have a strange sort of affinity for or attraction to sea turtles. Um, I mean, I had always sort of, you know, anything in the ocean I'm attracted to, but I'm, I'm saying they're attracted to me in a way, or at least it seems that way. Of course, once something like that happens, you're always on the lookout, but it's like, they always seem to just kind of appear and hang out with me for a while and then leave. And maybe that happens to other people. I don't know. Maybe that's my own wish fulfillment, but, but it's interesting, right? God, and now I'm I'm thinking about all sorts of weird animal things that have happened. Um, and by weird, I mean they seem like oddly coordinated. Like that bird can't know that I'm in here talking. A bird can't know that you know I've uh, brought Tiokas and Ghost Horse to the island, and you know these birds aren't in on the conversations. So what's going on here? This turtle. Uh, it is as if. Something else, right, is uh, informing their decisions to behave in a certain way. Uh, and one of them was when I was living in New York, um, I was in taking my lunch break in Central Park. And um, I was sitting alone at the edge of uh, this pond and this row of ducks came quacking by, you know, as ducks are prone to do, except creepily, they, as soon as they got in front of me, they stopped and one by one turned on a dime and faced me and just sat there in the water with this line of ducks facing me. And it didn't look as though I was in their spot, like they were waiting to come up on shore exactly where I was. It looked like they were on their way to somewhere, and they stopped and then turned on a dime and then stared at me. Um, and that was creepy. And I left. <laughs> because who needs it, right? <laughs> Don't want to see how that story ends. But since this thread has made its way into the conversation, let's see if we can't tie it together. Uh, 
what is going on there? You know, what are these synchronicities, these signs that we get that are obvious? Um, and when they lead to something, they're, they're super obvious, right? Like, I mean, some of these things um, might just seem interesting if you're listening to them or not. But like, if I told you the rest of the Teokas and Ghost Horse story, you would see that that was an entire period of time of that began a period of time of uh, great synchronicities that felt like this is what it is like to be in the orbit of Teokasen really is what it felt like. Um, and I think it would make sense. I don't think it just would sound that way in my head. It would sound that way to you. I'm not going to bother telling that story here. I've told it before um, on uh, probably on Paratopia or the experience or both. Anyway, the important point here or question is, what do you think that is? Do you think it's unknowable? Do you think it is, uh, I mean, a logical person would say it's coincidence. An illogical person, <laughs> I guess, would therefore say, someone like me would say, it is not coincidence. It's a synchronicity, which means it has meaning. And so I can tell you what that meaning is for me personally, and it, you may see it or you may not, but that doesn't matter. You know, the meaning is for me personally, unless it happens in the context of a group and then it's for the group uh, or whatever they make of it individually. So asking what the meaning of synchronicities is, uh, is not a, a fruitful question for us all. Uh, it's not really that important. What might be more important is asking why meaning unfolds that way in the first place. Uh, is it really a, an invisible hand at work? Someone else's invisible hand. Well, it can feel that way because I think I've said this on this show before. Our perspectives in the world are first person, second person, third person. The reason that we think that the, the self is everything, is the God, you know, the center, the immortal center, the reason that's so attractive is because being you, being me, is a first person experience in and of itself. But let's talk about spirituality for a second here. We approach spirituality from these three points of view, a third person point of view of the unknowable, the spiritual unknowable uh, is to treat it like an it, like something out there, like a, an old Testament God in the sky who we can't understand, who persecutes us, who has no real relationship with us except to like command us. And we try to figure out what, what he wants. Uh, that would be a third person point of view. A second person point of view of spirituality uh, would be more of the New Testament, the Jesus character, the Buddha, um, the the person, the guru, the person that you can relate to. You can identify with him or her. Uh, and then the first person point of view is that you are that. You are that person. You're not identifying with, you're identifying as but not in a delusional, I'm Jesus Christ, I'm Napoleon, put me in a mental ward kind of way, uh, but that you've had the actual 
um, waking up into wholeness and understand thyself as all of the above perspectives, first, second, and third. They're all you. You understand them all completely because they're you. But now, if you live in the world, the world is still reacting to you through those three perspectives. Uh, because the movement of oneness gets broken up into separate movements through time. And these are the three lenses through which they are broken. So now you recognize what used to look like an invisible hand, what used to look like a synchronicity from on high, uh, is actually one speaking to oneself through the machination of time. And here comes the rain again, just in time. For the end of this, which is to say, the reason that we convert others, the reason that we need to be right, that mechanism of needing to be right is a mechanism of first or second person approach to life. The first person I am identity, there's no need to do anything like that. There's no... There's no duality, there's no question, there's no struggle. But within duality, we try to make sense of the world because we're not that first-person experience. We're the egoic first-person experience, if you want to say it that way. We're the self living in relationship with things, but we're not the one who says, I am also those things. And so we cannot be contented with just being. We have to do. What do we have to do? We have to create and then fortify an illusion of how the world ultimately is. Because we don't understand the ultimate. Because the ultimate is that first-person identity as. And because we're not there... Forget it. Let's just listen to the rain. 